This is 508, a show about Worcester. It's September the 7th, 2018. I'm Mike Benedetti, the co-host, and this is Brendan Malikin, the co-host. How's it going, brother? Brendan, it's going good. As everybody who's listening to this knows, this is a Worcester fan cast. Every week we watch that week's episode of Worcester, Massachusetts, and then, you know, we talk about it on this uh, sort of on this sort of post show. Unfortunately, I was really busy this week, and I uh, didn't, didn't get, get a to chance to TiVo uh, the episode, so I'm hoping you can fill me in on everything that took place. Well, you know, I uh, I definitely can. I mean, here here's like I'll I'll give you the I'll give you the quick rundown of uh, the topics that I'm looking at. Uh, powwow, housing politics. Well, we had a couple of national um, listicle stories that featured Worcester. One about our bad drivers, and one about the beautiful Holy Cross campus. And uh, we have an article called we have a, a academic article called the liking gap. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Mike. Do you remember? Because you're old enough. Yes. Like my age. I am. Do you remember when listicles were just things that were like filler in the sidebar of Time Magazine and not something that was considered like actual journalism? I don't even know how much of the, the listicle is even a thing anymore. Like I, that's all there is. Like if you if if you're not like like involved in like sort of like reading like long form journalism and whatnot, if you're just looking at like what what I think we consider a lot of our regular mainstream sort of journalism, that's all I see anymore is lists. Well, you know, lists are. Um, Umberto Eco said that lists are the uh, foundation of civilization. He actually said this that you know the, the that uh, so much of our communication is about trying to cope with infinity and cope with our mortality. Sure. And making lists is the only way that we can deal with an infinite, uncontrollable universe and turn it into something that we can pretend to control. I'm not saying I'm not cool with lists, Mike. I'm just saying I remember a time when it wasn't really considered to be the high watermark of journalism. Well, all, all I'm saying is I feel like maybe it's always been the high watermark of journalism. All right. I don't know. Um, let me tell you, man, those guys who wrote the Bible, super into lists. Lots of oh, lists, rules. Actually, I want to talk about powwow. Do, can we talk about powwow? Sure. Is there any, did you know anything about what's going on with powwow this week? What do you mean? It was sort of a, an open question. I wasn't. Sure I mean, I'm just a, asking. I mean, there's a lot happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's what, what's been going on this week? Well, last night was Secret Walls at the dive bar, which okay. is probably my favorite event that sort of coincides, not directly related to, but coincides uh, with powwow, and that's that's sort of like a, a live art battle. Uh, last night it took place again, like I said, in the dive bar on Green Street. Uh, they buffed the back wall in their uh, beer garden, and uh, you have two teams of artists who, over 90 minutes, uh, with a DJ playing in the background, uh, basically have a paint war on that wall. And uh, well, it's great though. What's really nice about the event is that the location is not disclosed until like last night was about an hour before it actually started. Oh wow! Um, which I think, if you were like a typical sort of promoter or marketing person, you say, well, that's never going to work. Except like last night, after the place was at capacity, there was a line all the way down Green Street. Right. There this is one of these things. Like up on train tracks, standing on cars along Temple Street, uh, in the neighboring parking lots, like people pulling up on cars yeah. to get up on top of them. It was fantastic. It was a really, really great night, Lister. You know, it's um, like the merits of this particular event. Uh, aside for a second, like I'm just surprised that Worcester can, or I'm pleasantly surprised that Worcester, Worcester can uh, support anything like that. Any of these sort of big city sounding things. Like yeah, no, well, and, and that's what makes me so like happy that. about Pow Wow over the last three years is that 
Yeah, I think that what you just said is kind of conventional wisdom, right? Like I've heard a lot of folks even in and around City Hall for years say things like uh, Worcester doesn't do weird. Like we, we don't handle weird well. Oh, I, I don't understand. I don't understand no, no, it in I, the slightest. Yeah, I, neither do I. It's never been my uh, my, like my worldview, but I, I think it is kind of a, a normal way for people who come from like a post-industrial mill town to view things, right? It, like It's like saying Worcester doesn't do snow. That yeah. <laughs> okay, like on the one hand, it is true that like the infinite amounts of snow that we get we uh, have a trouble dealing with them sometimes but it's not true that we are a snowless city yeah. far from it it's w- same thing worcester, with worcester and weird worcester doesn't do walking endless miles and whistling at the same time right they're just these things that we actually know we do even though it might defy conventional wisdom and yeah. you know powwow has just done such a fantastic job over the last three years i think of just pushing the needle slightly uh, allowing people to get a little bit more creative with the way they express themselves in the city and uh What's fantastic is year after year, uh, it, it's it's almost become a celebration of, from my perspective, on the outside, a celebration of um, of uh, meeting new people who are kind of getting yeah. brought into that fold. And yeah. Like last night, you know, the, the dive bar is one of those places that rarely on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night is it not uh, full of people. But over time, you kind of feel like you recognize all of them. Last night was one of those great nights. You look around and you're like, I don't know who any of these people are. And that's a beautiful reminder that we live in a city of 200,000 people surrounded by 1.5 million in the county, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, 7 million in the state. And we got a lot of work to do before we can say, I know everybody. And yeah, good stuff. You know, every year um, when the uh, Powell episode of Worcester happens, we always sort of threaten to do a Powell episode of 508, which we could do, I think, a good version of because you're very much connected to that event, Powell. And I feel like every year we sort of uh, blow it scheduling-wise. And I realized that this week that I am totally okay with that. That even though – because, like, it's not like there is the powwow episode of Worcester and then powwow goes underground for a year. It's like in the background of every single scene of every week's episode, there is powwow. There is, yeah. No, and, and again, it's just from an outside perspective because uh, it, it, it is it's really fantastic to watch how the city has changed visually. Uh, how people are, are, I think, are, are more apt to stop and just look at something that's actually always been, right? Like, think of how many buildings we have that you walk by on a regular basis and then changing something about the facade, something about that makes it okay to just stop and stare for a little while, which to me, any anything that gives people an opportunity to, like, pause in their life, it, mm-hmm. especially in the real world, uh, is fantastic. Um Yes, I, I, the the opportunity to actually change the way people are viewing their city is pretty special, uh, especially in a city like Worcester where we haven't always viewed it in the most positive light, viewed ourselves in the most positive light. It's so amazing to me to be able to take this these murals for for uh, for granted, honestly, at this point. Like, I don't think that I've seen any of the new powwow stuff in the flesh. If I no. have, I haven't recognized it. But I also don't feel like I need to seek it out like I did in past years. I feel like I'm going to see it. Yeah. Before in the next month, maybe even six weeks, worst case, next week, best case, I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to see it. And until then, Brendan, I'm surrounded by murals all the day long anyway. Yeah. So like the mural, mural Worcester is like part of my daily life, and like it's just going to be part of my daily life for larger chunks of the city. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing this new stuff. Well, when we leave the uh, our underground layer uh, today down an alley uh, in, in a, downtown in Worcester a in a basement, uh, we'll have to take a quick walk because my favorite one that I've, that has been completed um, back at the Palladium 
uh, OG Slick. Uh, it's I, I'll let you see it for yourself, but it's um it's it, it's probably kind of predictable from a Worcester perspective, mm-hmm. but the way it's done, the composition is absolutely fantastic, and uh, yeah, that one just has made me so happy watching it go up and uh, just being able to sit in that parking lot behind the Palladium and stare at it. We'll check it out. I'm looking forward to seeing it. You know something, Brendan? People in Worcester are bad drivers. We talked about this in the past, and we've speculated as to why this might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this week, Allstate came out with their 2018 Best Drivers Report, and they rank uh, America's cities based on how good the drivers are. You know, looking at like uh, how many, like what's the average number of years between uh, auto auto insurance claims that sure. people in say Brownsville, Texas, have. Um, how many uh, hard-breaking events per thousand miles do yeah. they have in Brownsville, Texas, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, I bring up Brownsville because Brownsville is the best driving city in the U.S. by every by every metric. You can also sort of sort it and be like, well, let's what if, what about uh, population density? Mm-hmm. If you take that into account, what happens? What if you take uh, snow into account? No matter what you take into account, Brownsville, Texas, great driving town. You notice a terrible driving town, Brendan, is Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> so I hear. So this is the the top 200 cities in the U.S. Number, You're going to read all 200 of them? Well, I'm going to read you number 200. The crappiest driving city is Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, 199 is Boston. 198 is Washington, D.C. And 197 is Worcester, Massachusetts. Maybe, you know, maybe this is just the influx of people coming to Worcester from Boston. That well, is uh, thrown off because if Boston is actually worse than us. Well, you know, we've I mean, we've 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 tried to speculate on are there specific Worcester things that make it so that our drivers are so bad? Like, mm. I, and I honestly think that we talked about this, like this theory that maybe the badness is just because we have multiple driving cultures coexisting. Yeah. So that people are never really sure like who's supposed to go next at a four way or stop or whatever. But, Brendan, it's, it is, again, interesting to know that Boston is the second worst, Worcester's the fourth, fourth worst, and Springfield is, like, the sixth worst. Yeah, I think it's all just a pass-through. So it's just Massachusetts. It's just yeah. this whole strip of Massachusetts are terrible drivers. So there's not, maybe not a Worcester factor. We could be worse. Yeah. You know what's something that, that's interesting about that? You, you mentioned part of the data that they collect is um, heartbreaking incidents. Yes, yes. And you probably... You know, you you don't do a lot of driving. I don't. Uh, you might be asking yourself, well, how does Allstate know how how hard somebody hits their brakes? I actually just discovered this last year. Uh, started a new insurance policy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the norm now when you start a new insurance policy. You'll get in the mail uh, a little Bluetooth device or a little like it's basically a little thing. It looks like a little Bluetooth, but it uh, plugs into your uh, ODB2 um, port uh, under your dashboard. Okay. But you ever go to get an inspection sticker and the guy like you, know, you see him go under their little computer thing and plug it in? That's the ODB2 port. It's like a a standard port that's in most cars. I think post like '92. Yeah. That uh, allows access to the cars computer right and, okay and the insurance companies now send you this little thing that you get to plug into the obd obd2 reader and uh, or computer and um let it run for like 30 60 days depending on the policy or whatnot and it's tracking everything every data point that your car puts out so it's tracking how and this ha- this actually impacts the the cost of your your premium so potentially right? so, so so the idea is that potentially you can get lower than the regular premium yeah, like, if you're a safe driver or if they don't see you um you know accelerating quickly after a stop like say like you're not the kind of person who thinks every green light is a drag the start of a drag race uh hard braking is one of the things that they look for and it's kind of neat that um in a weird way that these data points are coming from tech Technology that uh, is really basically the byproduct of our deregulation of insurance companies in Massachusetts over the last decade or so. Well, it's amazing. 
technology, Mike. It is amazing. You know, you're listening to Unity Radio, broadcasting with 100,000 milliwatts of power on 102.9 FM and streaming at WorcesterMag.com. You can call in live at 508-471-5265. Thanks to the mighty Gabrielle Powers for engineering today's show. Hey, all you juggalos, libertarians, eclectic change makers, and passionate Worcesterites, this is the 508 Show. We'll be back after these messages. Live from our studio in a basement down an alley in downtown Worcester, this is 508. My name is Michael Benedetti, and today on the show I'm co-hosting with Brandon Mellican. Hello, Brandon. Thanks for allowing me to come back after the commercial break. This is Don Pardo. You're watching Saturday Night Live. This week we were watching this week's episode of Worcester, Massachusetts. We were just going through some... Fr- Brandon actually didn't watch it, so I, Brandon I didn't, have any, episode, uh, didn't have any feedbacks there. Um are you watching? Are there any TV shows that you're keeping up with week to week these days? Besides I don't watch Western? any TV show week All to right. week because I haven't had cable in uh, I, don't I don't know 14, 15 years. So it's like I just watch stuff when I feel like watching it because it's all streaming, right? Yeah. So there's, like I, you're not like you're not like somebody who's like, oh, Westworld is on. I gotta watch it every week because I'm just so into Westworld. No, the only I think the only uh, show that is on, you know, something that that is timed out like that is probably. Uh, uh, the Deuce. I'll look forward to. I think that oh, yeah. just started up again, and I'm looking forward oh, to seeing. That's a good show. The Deuce was fantastic, it's and then uh, we got season three of True Detective coming out soon too. I'll definitely <laughs> jump on board with that one as well. <laughs> Keep your fingers crossed, Brendan. No, it is. It's coming. Um, out. I just had a new trailer for it. You know, I was gonna say like I've been watching better. I've been so Better Call Saul has been the one that I've been watching, and yeah. as you know, it's been being followed by this show called uh, Lodge Forty Nine. So I've also been watching that. But Better Call Saul this year. This comes back to Worcester. Um, you know, the first few episodes, I wasn't really sure where it was going. It seemed like it kind of slowed down. And then, it, like, the last couple of weeks, it's really sort of popped together. It's like, not only is it, like, more badass action and excitement, but, like, I can kind of see where the themes are, see where the character arcs are now. And now that I can see them, it's a more compelling show. All right. I feel like Worcester, in this, this season of Worcester has been, like, it started off with this weird... Um, you know, it started off with like this weird like political hangover from the last. Right, we had a council election last fall, right? I, I, did, didn't we decide to retcon that whole entire? Period we, I mean, we wanted the... to retcon that out of the way, but it was like this total like train. I mean, it wasn't a train wreck, but it was a train wreck like uh, plot wise. It's more like a dumpster fire. It was just crazy. It was like a dumpster fire, which then like you think you're going to get thrown into the dumpster, and then they put the dumpster out, and you're like, well, that's good that I wasn't thrown into the dumpster, but I'm also sort of like feel like that. Arc didn't go anywhere. It's kind of like a train that was full of garbage. <laughs> a that train was, hauling a bunch of dumpsters. That got all the way to the port where it was going to be packed up and loaded onto a shipping container to be sent to China. And then we realized that China isn't taking more any more U.S. garbage. And then it burst into flames, spontaneously combusted while I was sitting there waiting to figure out where, where to go next. Well, yeah. anyway, so I, I I guess I just want to say that like I'm not I'm still not sure what the a plot of 2018 in Worcester is supposed to be like it started out with this dump this this political dumpster fire narrowly avoided and then it turns into this thing about the Worcester Renaissance and yeah. then it turns into this thing where we lose like hundreds of high tech jobs and then it turns into this thing where the city square is going to go okay and then it turns into this thing where we're going to spend a hundred million dollars to yeah. to buy somebody uh, ba- uh, uh, a big uh, thing so they can play baseball games downtown and it's like I don't know showrunners of Worcester I don't know where you're going see well this is you just brought up an interesting thing that uh when I used to watch TV as a kid right yes. like I was actually I loved watching TV shows whatever but I was I always had this weird thought in my head that I was really interested in what the storylines behind extras was 
and it's I, I, I had this thought was always ba- kind of based on the idea that like if you view your own world or your own existence as some sort of like a, a, a program like a TV yes. show or whatever right like you might even imagine for example the, the life of your city as a television show you may <laughs> if you're a crazy person you might do that but I mean I'm sure like you're walking down the street you probably might maybe have a song that like you can almost imagine that would be yeah. like your theme song oh, as you were yeah. walking like you know Shaft had a really great theme song sure, whatever sure. but and, and as you look around your own existence you, you're constantly surrounded by all these other people right and it's really their stories are, are far more are probably going to be more interesting than your own story from your own perspective by right? the way by the way for me it's the immigrant song by led zeppelin fantastic i was more of a green onions guy booker t and the mgs okay. but nice um i've all i was always really interested in what the story of the extras in a tv show was because yeah. they were just people that would pass through right there would be someone who just like literally just walk through the background of a set or be walking down there they, they didn't seem to fill any actual plot hole in a story you weren't even supposed to notice that they were there but they were always the people that i would focus on when i was a kid and i think that might be where the, the direction is. Worcester. Well, I know it's where the action is because you know you can't only be watching the most interesting person in the world. Like something else is interesting happening out there as well too. I think we're at a weird turning point where you're probably going to start seeing more stories get fleshed out by folks who have otherwise gone unknown, uh, characters who've gone unknown in the city of Worcester, and as okay. a result, maybe start seeing some spinoffs. This is going to be like season two of The Wire, and you're suddenly going to be like, wait, there was a there's a dock, there's, there's, a, there's a unionized dock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this, I mean, I feel like that connects into lists, actually, that we always talk about how Worcester talk shows have a group of about 50 people who they like to have on. And yes. in part, that's because, you know, you want to have a city councilor or a whatever on periodically because they actually know what's going on more than most people. And it, they can, you know, they, could, they, they have some responsibility for things, so they can talk from that perspective as somebody who has skin in the game. But um, I feel like there is a net, one of the, Things that I think encourages that list of 50 that's negative is that you just like want to pretend that Worcester is these 50 people. Right. Because otherwise it's hard to imagine what is really going on in the show once you start thinking about the other 195,000 some odd people. Which goes right back to what I was saying in the first segment when you were asking about uh, powwow and I was mentioning secret walls last night. No. It again, it's my favorite thing about the city when you're introduced to all these new people. Like you, you can only spend so much time in any given area before you start feeling like oh, I got it all figured out. And it's so nice to, for me, anyways. Oh, yeah. It's so nice to oh, be reminded yeah. that you know nothing. You know, there you know, for anyone in the city of Worcester who thinks they know everybody that matters, right? Like, well, there's 200,000 people living here, and chances are good you don't know any of them, and they're all doing cooler things than you are. So it's a matter of just figuring out what their stories are. Graham, Graham Greene said in some novel that uh, every city to each of its residents is a few dozen streets and a few dozen people, and it is always exciting to be reminded that um, while that may be your actual experience of the city, that's just again like a weird, yeah, a weird experience. I want to talk about uh, a thing that has to do with uh, housing politics. All right. So this is an article. This is an article by Noah Smith. Um, it's called Yuppie Fish Tanks: Yimbyism Explained Without Supply and Demand. I'm going to read some chunks from this, and Brendan, you should just interrupt as thoughts occur to you. Uh, I just had the thought yeah. that I think you're starting to make all of these up. No, this is real. I think you spend every week I just writing articles. Under my pen name of Noah <laughs> Smith. Noah Smith. Uh, he, says, he starts out by saying, Yimbyism is the idea that cities need to build more housing in order to relieve upward pressure on rents. And he goes, he goes on to say that supply and demand, we want to think about housing in a supply and demand sense. Like the argument for building more housing to deal with upward pressure on rents is that you increase supply right. and therefore the price drops. He says... 
It's a simplistic model of supply and demand. We know that it doesn't work well in the labor market. It kind of doesn't work well in the housing market because it's not like you go down to 7-Eleven and buy an apartment. Like These things are very location-specific. There's very specific kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Just because you put $5 million into building a giant mansion doesn't mean that suddenly that's the, the equivalent of building $5 million of cheap apartments. Sure. Um, he also talks about how supply and demand is maybe not a great – uh, argument because let's say you have, let's say you drop the price of rent three percent and you say oh look at this we built all these apartments and now the price of rent in Worcester dropped three percent isn't that great that a progressive activist might be like this three percent rent drop for somebody who like already can't afford their rent is not like the giant rent drop that we're looking for people like, and he says here it kind of sounds like let them eat cake like mm -hmm. well look you can get a three percent cheaper apartment you should you should thank us now. Um, so he, but he does want there to be more market rate housing. So he makes an argument here that uh, ignores supply and demand or sets that aside. Uh, he talks about how the structure of the U.S. economy has changed a lot in recent decades. Knowledge-based industries are much more important. For simplicity's sake, I'll refer to all these as tech. And these, um, these businesses have even more of an incentive to cluster together in cities, which means that tech workers who tend to earn high salaries mm -hmm. have been moving into cities like San Francisco, to a lesser extent, cities like Worcester, but we have right. certainly have our biotech uh, people in the city of Worcester. If they're going to work in the city, these tech workers are going to want to live in the city. Sure. Where will they live? Some of them will move into new, shiny, glass and steel apartment complexes downtown, like beautiful fish tanks for yuppies. But these beautiful, giant yuppie, yuppie fish tanks have limited space, so some of the incoming techies will go looking for apartments in other parts of town, neighborhoods occupied by long-term residents. The result, displacement, gentrification, and an increasing rent burden on everyone not protected by rent control. The YIMBY solution to the problem described above is simple. Build more of the pretty glass fish tanks to catch the incoming yuppies as they arrive. Most yeah. of the yuppies would rather live in the fish tanks. The fish tanks are pretty and modern and new with gyms and common space and other stuff yuppies like. Uh, even more importantly, long-term working-class residents and struggling artists and disadvantaged minority families are highly unlikely to go live in the yuppie fish tank. Mm -hmm. That means that every unit of yuppie fish tank housing, a.k.a. new market rate housing that you build, will either be A, occupied by a yuppie, or B, sit empty on the market. Landlords want to fill their units, so if there's too many fish tanks and B happens, they'll drop the rent until more yuppies move in. Eventually, every yuppie fish tank that you build will be occupied by a yuppie. Now, if the new fish tank units catch the incoming yuppies and prevent them from invading long-time working-class residential neighborhoods, that's good. And if the new fish tank units lure yuppies away from long-time residential working-class neighborhoods, that's also good. If the fish tanks draw yuppies from other cities, he says, well, that's not the greatest thing in the world as far as this argument goes, but it's more it's just kind of a wash. It doesn't increase or decrease the number of gentrifiers. Sure. Um, so the Yimby solution to the yuppie invasion isn't or shouldn't be just to build market hate rate housing anywhere and everywhere. It's more like the following. Build market rate housing that appeals, appeals specifically to yuppies. And instead of tearing down existing housing to build market rate housing, replace parking lots and warehouses and other inefficient commercial space with new market rate housing. In other words, Yimbyism is about yuppie diversion. It uses market rate housing to catch and divert yuppies before they can ever invade normal folks' neighborhoods. And he says, you know, he says, goes on to say why affordable housing is not a great solution to the yuppie invasion. The problem is that, like, if you tell somebody, like, well, okay, you live in Piedmont, and, uh, okay, so your rent's really high, but we built some affordable housing uh, across town. Why don't you move in there? It's like, well, now I have to move, which I sucks. want to get back to this when we get in, uh, out of this break that yes. we need to go into. But, so, I mean, it sounds like what uh, 
Noah Smith, who is not Mike Benedetti, yes. um, is saying that like Worcester's actually doing a pretty good job of housing. This is 508, Worcester's Libertarian Voice. We'll be back in a minute with more. It's an ordinary day in Worcester, Massachusetts, but wait. Look down on the ground. It's a germ. It's a worm. It's 508. Bursting from the subterranean depths of Wormtown like the mighty Shy Halud. It's 508, a show about Worcester, co-hosted by Brendan Mellican, the fan favorite, and Mike Benedetti, the one you love to hate. So we were just saying that... Um, one good thing about this fish tank solution is that it catches yuppies before they can cause whatever problems they're supposedly going to cause. Uh, and, uh, you know, like this is a nice strategy because building affordable housing means that if you want affordable housing, you have to move. And moving sucks. So doing this um, fish tank strategy, this Yimby strategy, potentially allows your rent to go down without you having to move or your rent to at least stabilize without you having to move. But it also it does all that within the constraints of the system that we actually have. I'm just going to throw back out what you say all the time when people seem to uh, irk you over wonderful ideas that are just not possible to be executed right now. Socialism ain't on the ballot this season, so right. we got to work on something else. Um, this seems to be very much like what Boston has been doing for the last decade or so, yeah. where they're taking giant swaths of land, uh, seaport being the easiest one, uh, acres upon acres upon acres of surface lots. Mm -hmm. They've turned it into all yuppie fish tanks. Um, Brendan Mellican, can you can you think of another city in the in the greater Boston area that in the last few years has built hundreds of housing units in uh, what were previously parking lots, warehouses, old courthouses, and hmm. otherwise underutilized spaces? It kind of sounds a little bit like Worcester, Massachusetts. It sounds exactly like Worcester. I feel the this fourth is, worst feel, driving city in America. I feel so I feel so validated by this. I feel like it's just like as long as we just like don't get in the way of people who are already doing things too much. This little strategy. Well, I mean, happened. and I, I totally get. I don't like the idea, the visual, anyways, of the city turning into a collection of fish tanks. It's if I wanted to go look at fish tanks, I'd go to an aquarium. Um, but it kind of makes sense, right? Like, I mean, we have a system that demands a certain degree of revenue stream to provide things for folks that. Uh, need things, and we only have so many places where that revenue can be pulled from. Property taxes being one of them. Yes. Uh, I mean, this kind of seems like the best solution to get where we, I think we both would probably want to go at a personal level, which is make sure that we're not actually displacing people by the bucket load uh, and provide affordable solutions to housing in a meaningful way. I, you know, I uh, he and he he has about three more things he says in here. I want to say what they are. One of them is what you just said. Okay. Uh, one of them is he says why affordable housing is good anyway. Building new market rate housing probably doesn't draw many new yuppies into a city from outside since if the jobs are outside the city, they'd still have to commute. Most people would rather not commute. So if they're yuppies and they work in Worcester, they're going to live in Worcester one way or another already. But many working class people are forced to commute yeah. from where their job is. So if you have affordable housing in Worcester and you're a lower income person working in Worcester, you can actually live in the city and not have to commute, which is which is nice and makes things good. Uh, and he mentions that some progressives, you know, there's one, one popular set of strategies is based on strengthening protections against yuppie invasions of longtime working class neighborhoods. When combined with prohibition of market rate housing development, these initiatives seek to drive yuppies out of a city entirely. But this is not a good idea because you have less tax revenue. Right. Therefore, you have less social programs, less of all the good things that you would like to have to, that would also help people who don't have a ton of money in their pocket. Well, and we have a, an interesting thing in Worcester, too, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of now that we spent the last few decades 
watching a lot of folks from the middle class and upper middle class leave the city to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those empty nesters seem to be coming back to the city now, uh, bringing their pensions, their retirement plans, or what have you with them. Uh, that seems to be what, what's happening at 145 Front Street, uh, our latest uh, Yuppie Fish Tank, um, is which he, is mostly I, full of empty nesters. I heard that What's-His-Face lives there now. I, I think you mean a former mayor, Jordan Levy? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> What's his face? What's his face? Is I just try not no, to say it's... people's full names in some situations where I might swear. As no, I understand. That. No, yeah, I, I believe Jordan uh, has moved down there. The um, other people have moved down there. That's kind of kind of a crazy thing, right? Like, yeah. from a, a I think a, a Worcester perspective, that we're starting to lure people back in from the donut kind of ring around the city uh, that's still Worcester proper, but is very suburban right. uh, to downtown, as well as bringing people back in from the sur- suburbs who left years ago. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing because if part of the argument of our, for our struggles or the the excuse for our struggles over the years has been a decreasing uh, pool of revenue because of people moving to the suburbs and we can start clawing some of that back, that would seem to be a win-win for everybody. Um, anyway, I just was inspired by this and I like the I like the way that he's getting around um, supply and demand because I do feel like the supply and demand I do feel like the weaknesses he points out, such as the fact that uh, supply and demand is a, not always the it's not always a clean Sure. Example of what's going well, on. Well, because you and want to stay ahead of it, too. As much and as that's not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that becomes problematic as well. Eventually, you're going to run into some sort of market fluctuation that, that throws everything for a loop. Brendan Mellican, do people like us more than we think? <laughs> Are you asking about <laughs> me personally? Or. Uh, uh, here we have this is a. I love this abstract. This is an abstract from an article in Psych- Psychological Science from the, uh, this week's issue, the September 5th issue of this journal. The, the journal authors, all I have are their initials here. Their last names are Boothby, Cooney, Sandstrom, and Clark. Their abstract is uh, for the article, The Liking Gap in Conversations. Do people like us more than we think? Having conversations with new people is an important and rewarding part of social life, yet conversations can also be intimidating and anxiety-provoking, and this makes people wonder and worry about what their conversation partners really think of them. Mm. Are people accurate in their estimates? We found that following interactions, people systematically underestimated how much their conversation partners liked them and enjoyed their company, an illusion we call the liking gap. We observed the liking gap as strangers got acquainted in the laboratory, as first-year college students got to know their dorm mates, and as formerly unacquainted members of the general public got to know each other during a personal development workshop. The liking gap persisted in conversations of various lengths and even lasted for several months as college dorm mates developed new relationships. Our studies suggest that after people have conversations, they are liked more than they know. Huh. You know what's interesting about that? <laughs> yes. And I'm well, glad you so brought that things. up, Mike. <laughs> no, I, you know, part of the reason I do this show with you and have for so long, and we've talked about this on a more personal level for you, I'm like completely introverted. I'm, like, I'm a total, complete introvert. Like I find it 100% the most emotionally draining thing that I can do in life is like talk to people. Yes. Uh, it, it just wipes me out completely. And, but I've learned as I've gotten older to kind of use that as, um, I don't know, you almost get, get a high off of it in a weird way. Then I'll go take a nap. But like the actual process is so draining, but becomes stimulating in a weird way. On top of that, I'm sure you're familiar with imposter syndrome. Like that would be that's probably part of the liking gap. Is yeah, my fate. My my picture's actually up on the Wikipedia page for imposter syndrome these days. Hearing that is actually kind of nice. I don't believe it's true, but it's it's a nice <laughs> reminder that there's at least hope and potential out there. That's why I'm going to continue thinking I'm a giant jerk and that everyone is happy when I walk away. That's why I wanted to put that on there because I feel yeah I feel like it just makes me think like you know what 
if I ever feel like I did an episode of the show and that the audience at home is maybe bored, maybe they are. They may be bored, but they're probably less bored than I think. <laughs> less bored, slightly less bored. Um, you know, uh, this week, I don't understand why this is. Condé Nast Traveler listed Holy Cross on their un- unranked list of America's 50 most beautiful college campuses. This just sort of this this struck me in part, Brendan. Because it is a beautiful campus. This week, uh, this week, uh, a longtime Worcesterite and older lady who I knew um, showed me a little garden at the WPI campus that I never knew was there. I never spent enough time hanging at WPI that I was surprised that there was a whole secret garden. But it was cool to find that there was a whole secret garden wing of WPI, and it was very nice. Mm-hmm. But it made me think about how um, I do feel like our college campuses are a little bit on the. Uh, you know, they're not as they're not like the great college campuses of the world to my mind. Like, there's not like like whenever I'm like, oh, I want to sit in a beautiful place that's quiet yeah. and peaceful. I would be like, well, maybe I could go to like the, some parts of the Worcester Art Museum where there's a chair mm-hmm. that are quiet and peaceful and beautiful. But the college campuses are just kind of like, you know, they're in the middle of a city. They're not like amazingly beautiful or anything. But apparently, Condé Nast thinks Holy Cross is Holy Cross is a pretty. I never. Have you never been up there? I I've been up there. Yeah. I never would put them on my list. Really? Yeah. Have you like walked through the campus like like truly not just like from parking lot to building? Apparently not because uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's because I'm so stunned by it. I mean I'm, I'm excited by this. Yeah, that we have this gem that I need to explore. It is, and WPI is another one that's fantastic. I would say Becker is of all the colleges that have grown significantly over the years. Their campus is probably one of the nicer considering considering where it's 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 situated right like in a pretty dense residential neighborhood. I'm talking about mm-hmm. the Worcester campus. Yeah, um, off of Highland Street. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just cutting through, it's like, wow. Like, I mean, a lot of it is re- old residential buildings that have been uh, taken I mean, over, but the main yeah. campus is, like, there's some really cool little features in there that huh. you wouldn't necessarily think of. Assumption is another one that's, I mean, not the most exciting campus in the world, but, you know, it's a little bit more sprawling, I think, than people realize uh, sometimes. And even Clark. I guess it depends when you're there, too. You know, like, because if you're there when it's, like, midday and there's students moving around and whatnot, it might not seem that relaxing. And, and I also feel like, you know, campuses probably are one of those things. If you, if you if you run a college, if you're a college president in the city of Worcester, maybe it's time we start inviting some locals in in the uh, off season because that's another kind of byproduct I think of of years of hostility between Worcester residents and the in the university systems in Worcester that isn't as much of an issue today, but was at a point. And I don't think people spend as much time poking around those college campuses as they probably once did. I bet you the colleges feel like they probably spend too much time. There's too many creepy guys looking looking for college girls or whatever. Well, maybe that's what it is, too. I don't know. Let's, maybe they don't want... Well, I don't know. You know we've got some nice campuses, Mike. You know, Brendan, Bill Shaner, I'm very excited, has a... Um, article and uh, his he, he, today he leaked his cover story for next week's Worcester magazine which is uh, the best city council orders of the last 10 years mm. and this prompted me to look up the old ones such as Gary Rosen's great order of um, saying whenever we demolish uh, the downtown mall. Mm-hmm. What will we do with the influx of rats that fled out of the property? That was a great one. Gary Rosen's thing about can we have rubber sidewalks mm-hmm. in the city? That was a great one. I didn't realize that in 2006, Kate Toomey also had one about asking the city manager if we could uh, start doing some podcasting in order to communicate with the city. Really? Yeah, Kate always so much on the cutting edge of this stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, like 2006 is like really, really, I feel like the first wave of podcasting still in 2006. Kate Toomey, the Joe Rogan of Worcester. I think maybe before we were podcasting, she was asking the city to podcast. Um, will we have a minute left? Yeah. This is 508, Worcester's week by week good faith survey of evidence. We'll be back with more. In, in poor time. 
This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye, and dark within. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye, and dark within. And this is 508, a Worcester, Massachusetts fan cast, co-hosted by Brandon Mellican and Michael Benedetti. Hi, Brandon. We're back from the break now. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Oh, we've been having a good time today. So you know, you're just telling me off air. You get accosted yeah. for uh, for not voting. I don't know. I, I mean, talking about not voting, I feel like that's. I feel like we can't even talk about that. I mean, this was like apparently part of the show this week was something about primaries. My vision of Worcester, Massachusetts, the primaries were not a big part of this week's show. Yeah. They were just like a whatever thing. Totally. You know? Like, I mean, which is, again, maybe we should be grateful. There was a long time when I felt The primaries in this week's show were essentially yes. like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson – uh, fighting with James Cameron for 15 years to try and correct the sky in the movie Titanic before James Cameron finally threw you know his hands in the air and said, "Fine, we'll re-edit the film and give you." We'll the just right have sky. a big picture of your face in the sky. That makes you happy. You're the only person who noticed that this was actually the wrong sky, but yeah. since it means so much to you, yeah, no, whatever. That guy. That guy. Um. Yeah, so I don't feel like it was a big part of the show. I mean, you know, there was a long time when I sort of felt frustrated with city politics that I felt like, they, and people who are recent newcomers to the city will be very surprised to hear me say this, that I felt that they were not, um, they were not clear political divisions. Well, we, they we, were not energized by enough yeah. divisiveness and conflict. There were not enough, uh, uh, any of these kinds of things in city politics. And so they were just sort of frustrating, and I felt like people should just abandon them completely. And then in recent years, we've had a lot of division and a lot of conflict. And uh, none of it has been in a really productive way, unfortunately. And all of it has made me feel like I'm so happy to have a primary that I feel like I don't have to pay attention to. We've come full circle in a weird way. Again, for folks that might not have been listening to us 10 years ago, the normal uh, election uh, coverage was you basically <laughs> trying to convince people not to, to vote. Not like, here are the reasons why you should not be engaged in society. I think you came around over the last couple of years, you know, and we started doing more, uh, you know, like I, th- I think there were more things that needed to be discussed that would lead one to the conclusion that, okay, I got to get out and vote. I think to your point, though, I, we, we've kind of come full circle in a weird way, because while there was a time where there didn't seem to be any divisiveness in, in Worcester politics, and then we went to the opposite extreme where it was nothing but divisiveness, the only thing that never really seemed to change between that in that in that span of time was yes, we remain really, really good at identifying problems, and we do the probably one of the worst, well, we're just bad at this as Americans, but we do a terrible job of identifying or come up with solutions. And I think that's where on a long enough timeline you do end up getting a little bit jilted, no matter you kind of become George Carlin in a way, right? Like, and, and start wondering whether or not this is something that if it mattered, it would be illegal. Um, yes. It's just, you know, if, if all the bickering stands to do is get people who are still engaged to continue being engaged, to keep the system, the cycle kind of moving. It's not really accomplishing much of anything. You know, these days I kind of think Noah of, Smith is accomplishing something well, over here with my, his writing. My, my Batman-like alter ego, yeah. Noah Smith. You know, I, these days I sort of think about voting in calm times a little bit like I think about civil disobedience. Sure. So I have, you know, I have gone to the slammer a couple of times for civil disobedience um, and I think that in most times and in most places civil disobedience is not the way to accomplish your goal mm-hmm. that it's a lot of energy that doesn't get you anywhere but I also think it's good to keep your hand in like maybe you don't need to do it but there need to be people in society who are doing it because when the time comes that we're going to need civil disobedience you don't want to start from square one right 
A, a comparable example would be anti-war stuff. If there were a bunch of you know World War II pacifists who kept things going through the War, war Resisters League and whatever, all through the 40s, the 50s, into the 60s, and then when the anti-war movement against Vietnam coalesced, suddenly all these old-timers were like, well, here's how you do a protest. Yeah. Here's how you make a sign. So people didn't have to start from square one and reinvent the wheel, right. mix the metaphor however you like. Um, I feel a similar thing with voting. So, so that, you know, it's good to be probably paying attention to things and it's good to be engaged enough to at least be voting, maybe not in the primary, but certainly in the general. Uh, you know, it's good to be involved with that because maybe this year you feel like you don't have a lot of – like the candidates are all just kind of samey. Sure, sure. Or the plausible candidates, the candidates with the chance are kind of samey. But you know what, dude? I think we've learned from bitter experience. Sooner than you want, you're <laughs> going to have a terrible election where the candidates are – it's going to be between kind of boring and pure evil. And you're going to be glad at that point if you have been uh, – engaged enough that you feel like you have some leverage and that you know how to vote and that you're in the habit of voting and that your friends are in the habit of voting so when it's time to get out and say like this guy sucks we got to vote against him uh you know you'll you'll feel like you know how to do that you'll feel like you know you're, you're not you're not having to just like start from square one yeah no argument this is my this is my new argument i always have somewhat arcane arguments for why you should vote they're never just like you should participate in civics but that's my well, no, current I mean, argument it, it is kind of a it, it's a weird one right because we've talked about this for years of, of course you should be engaged in 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 society There's so many in ways civics, right but it's like at the same time like you know how do you convince somebody that this is actually of value right you look at participation rates they're they're abysmal in the united states and it seems kind of obvious as to why, right? Like we structure voting around times that are not convenient for people who actually work, uh, who actually have lives to live and well, whatnot. Well, and we don't do a good job of really covering actual issues and making people feel like, you know, there are things that impact them directly. Well, you know, I, so I want to I want to say now that like so maybe this argument more people that are voting, made... Mike, in the war between Deadpool 2 and Paddington Bear and uh, the uh, 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 America's Viewers Choice Movie Awards for Best Family Film right now than what have participated in most national election cycles. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like the um, you know, I feel like my my new little theory of voting here. Uh, in some ways, I would liken it to Noah Smith's analysis of why market rate housing is good that ignores supply and demand. Because it's, sometimes it's like your initial intuition is correct, but the reasons that you're giving are not valid reasons. But there probably are valid reasons. Mm -hmm. You just got to keep thinking about it to see what your what, what what how is your gut actually coming up with this answer? That you know, again, like maybe that you need, maybe the reason that you want to have more people voting is not because whatever. It's nice to have more people voting. You feel like you have a, more, a society where more people have bought in explicitly. If more people are voting, it's like you need to keep your people uh, in the habit of voting. Yeah. Because again, when things go bad, the people, the side with the people who are in the habit of voting is the side who's going to win the next time there's a divisive election. Yeah. And the divisive election is going to come. In the next ten years, it's going to come sooner than the next ten years. It's one of these things where you know every, you always you always overestimate you know you always uh, overestimate the chance there's going to be a flood in the next year, and you always underestimate that there's going to be a chance in the next flood in the next hundred years. You probably over you probably way underestimate the chance that you're going to have a crazy existential election in Worcester in the next ten years because you're certainly not going to have one in the next two years, but in the next ten years, I bet you are. Yeah, no, and and more so probably on the national and state level as well too, where things are are likely to just continue getting more and more bizarre. Yes. Maybe maybe just we'll see a little bit more crazy with people that I tend to agree with more, but it's still going to be crazy. And uh, so yeah, we got it. So 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 this is the argument which says like we got to keep voting people because even if it's just like well why am I voting between these two kind of like middle of the road whatever. 
whatever people in this election. Why am I trying to get my friends to worry about voting for them? It's like because, dude, it's the same thing. Like, why are you why are you doing these why are you doing these bench presses with this piece of with this barbell? Why do you want to move that barbell so much? Well, because like, maybe you might have to fight a bear someday. Right, you don't care about that barbell. <laughs> you care about the bear that you're going to have to fight down the road. What one man can do, another can do, Brendan. <laughs> what one man can do, another can do. Same thing. That election, it's like I'm vote, I'm not voting for Kate Toomey because this Kate Toomey election is important. I'm doing it because voting for Kate Toomey is a bench press. Yeah, no, and it's uh, I, there there is something to be said too, and, and this is something we only do after the fact, but we really need to start. We opened the show talking about the week prior in the show of Worcester. And you asked me uh, yes. how many shows I watch on a weekly basis. And I don't, because watching TV is dumb and inconvenient. I do watch lots of streaming services when I can pull my phone out of my pocket and do that thing anytime I want to when it's convenient for me. That's where we also need to be having a bigger conversation. That probably does have to start on a local level, even though it would sound absurd on a local level. The whole uh, practice of voting is such a bizarre, antiquated, and outright stupid thing. It's what needs to go away, right? The idea that, like, I need to, in this span of time, go to a building that I will never go to throughout the rest of the year. This is a building that I only go to once a year. You're like, I don't even know where it is. a piece of paper and a stupid pen that barely writes because the person before me decided that, like, it was like that kid with a marker for the first time (laughs) and smashed the felt tip into nothing. Um and then go through this whole process where, you know, I'm judged and sneered at by a bunch of old people from various political parties and organizations, maybe also neighbors Colin who knew Novick. me 20 years ago and Colin never Novick really liked said, me. Colin, Colin Novick's had an old people, but he's one of the people there. He's, he's sneering, sneering and judging, at, judging me as well, too, but then he's got that great laugh, so it makes everything better, and I ignore <laughs> the, the sneering. I mean, really, the thing is that voting, you want actual participation? Then get it the same way you get participation and everything else in the world and start moving it online. If we can no be voting way, from our dude. phones, oh. then we're all set. Every, and I know everyone loves to say that yeah, there's nothing more secure than your paper oh ballots. Dude, if so that's bad. what we actually believe, then that's fine. But we, our bigger problem then is the entire banking system right now is the least secure thing in, in humanity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. <laughs> Come on, imagine the participation. Imagine how much fun we would have. It you know, would actually be idiocracy. It you know, would be, we would have wrestlers, actual wrestlers, active wrestlers running for president. And you know what? That's what we deserve. You know, I just realized I can't take the Lord's name in vain, but I can definitely take the Holy Virgin Mary's name in vain. There's no rule against that. Why, what would your opposition be to making uh, voting an actual accessible thing? Oh, like I could send you. I could email you some XKCD that would totally change your mind about Eva. I don't know that you would. I don't know that it would. <laughs> I'm just joking. Are we ready to wrap this thing up? All right. Out, out, are the lights out all into overreach quivering form, and the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the tra- play is the tragedy man in its hero, the conqueror worm. This is Mike Benedetti, Brendan Melkin, and our amazing engineer, Gabrielle Powers. We will talk to you next week on the 508 Show. Thank you, Worcester.